I'm Parker Millsap. I'm uh, currently in Madison, Tennessee, where I live, just outside of Nashville. And uh, I'm a singer-songwriter. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, thanks for really listening. I am a cloud Once it has fallen I am the take The engine is stolen Oof, maybe I should just not say anything this time and let Parker Millsap sing a little bit longer. It's kind of what I need right now. Is that okay with you guys? Okay, cool. Yeah, I could probably just keep listening to him sing for the rest of the day. This is Zach here, your friendly music spirit guide. I'm not at a show on the road just yet, but I'm still in the wilderness of my back patio as spring is calling out with all its green glory. You might be able to hear the jets hitting across the ceiling of the sky, across the Pacific, the lemon tree swaying next to me in the breeze, the mysterious black sap that is falling from the sky and hitting my keyboard right now, and the hummingbirds... They're doing their daily swoop down. Their wings are blurring in the afternoon sun as I think to the last time I heard Parker Millsap sing in person. And if I jog my memory, I think it was a sweaty tent somewhere in Denmark. And as you just heard, he has a voice that seems to leap out of the mic like lightning. A voice that could rattle the stained glass of any pretty Pentecostal church in his native Oklahoma or any sticky floored saloon or mother church hallowed hall from the Ryman to the Fillmore. All I know is, from the moment I heard his first record, Palisade, which dropped in 2012 when Parker was a precocious old soul, 19-year-old, I couldn't get enough. And maybe that deep need to stop everything that you're doing when a voice begins singing in a hall. That booming, blow-your-hair-back kind of voice. A tender, beautiful voice. It's something deep in our DNA. According to the BBC, while musical instruments appear to be a relatively recent human innovation, about 40,000 years old or so, music and singing itself are almost certainly much older. New evidence suggests it may have allowed our distant ancestors to communicate before the invention of language itself, and it's been linked to the establishment of monogamy and helped provide social glue needed for the emergence of the first large, early, and pre-human societies. While some of us are blessed to grow up in families where everyone plays an instrument, or everyone sings, or you grew up in a big city maybe where you can see concerts and theater all the time, that was not the case for Parker in the tiny town in Oklahoma where he was born. He had to create and believe in himself first. And damn, are we lucky that he did. Because I think he's one of the best singer-songwriters of our or any generation. Anyway. Real quick, I wanted to let you know that my gang Dust Bowl Revival is going out on a limb and bringing some brand new musicians together for an epic double virtual concert experience May 6th and 13th. You can watch us anywhere on mandolin.com. We will be playing new songs, old songs, and our newest record in its entirety. Please support live music. Go to dustbowlrevival.com for more. And as always, please leave us a kind review on iTunes. Share the show with your amigos. Here he is now, Parker Millsap. So, you have a new record coming out uh, very soon, next week, as we record this, I believe. So it's pretty exciting, but we're not really able to fully tour and support it like we used to right now. Does it feel like uh, a little bit of delayed gratification where you can't fully share your art with 
the public right away, or does it feel like maybe when you actually get out there later in the summer and the fall that it'll be even more satisfying? Um, it's weird. <laughs> it's weird for sure. Um, especially not having played a lot of this material live, really. I think yeah. there's only one song on the record that I've ever played. No, two that I've ever played live before. Um, and, you know, usually I've played a bunch of songs live and I know which ones people react to. And if people aren't reacting to something, that song just kind of goes away, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, there's no road testing at all for new records right now. Totally. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty weird. Um, but it's good to see, you know, like people leave nice comments on social media and stuff. <laughs> um, and I've seen some of, you know, like the streaming and radio reports and, uh, that's, that's doing well. And I'm grateful for that. Um, yeah. Well, I think you're probably in the same boat as me where you'll have songs that are created for live impact, right? And your voice can go a lot of places. You have obviously the fire and brimstone soul knockout punch, you know, and then you have this super, you know, soft, tender stuff that um, really draws people in. Um, do you find that some of the louder, more rock and roll stuff is not necessarily uh, the stuff that's listened to as much online or uh, vice versa? Because I know for our group, Dust Bowl Revival, there's been a continual frustration in that the songs that people love and dance to and get fired up at at shows are not what they're listening to at home. Yeah. And so yeah. it's like, well, should we not record the like fun, you know, brassy fire starters or should we uh, put them like lower in the sequence, you know, and put the softer stuff up front that no one's ever heard or no one requested, <laughs> you know, yeah. that gets tons <laughs> of play. You know, it's like really yeah. hard to determine. Yeah, it, it is hard to know. Um, I just try to stay focused on like what feels right. You know what I mean? Is this, uh, am I enjoying this? And if I'm having a good time, then that will hopefully shine through on the recording, you know? Um, but sometimes it is just really unpredictable. Like I've had many of my like slower ballads that get added to like random playlists. Right. And then because of that, you know, it gets a lot more listeners than it normally would. Right. Um, and then so people come to the show all knowing, I, I noticed this, you know, when we were still doing shows, <laughs> um, people come to the show knowing a lot of those softer songs right. and, and they do want to hear them live, but then you see everybody get amped at the show and yeah, you're like, well, none of those songs are the ones that are being listened to. It's, it's, it's weird. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's funny because when I try to describe you to folks, because I've been trying to spread your music far and wide for, God, 10 years. Um, and I saw you in person, you know, several places in Europe when we, you know, were at the same yeah, festival. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, we've done, we've run into each other quite a few times on the road. And I think that I realized this morning listening to your stuff that there's an interesting, I think, Paul McCartney parallel that I see in your music. Like, oh, thanks. The, <laughs> I really appreciate that. He's such a hero. <laughs> well, because he has that kind of gritty blues 
soul thing going on when he really gets fired up. But then he brings it back and plays, you know, Blackbird. It's funny when you look at publications trying to describe what you do, right? Or like, uh, or we'll take things out of context maybe. Uh, you know, there's like a Rolling Stone headline saying like, hey, you know, he makes gospel sex music. I remember that one. That was from like a random interview line that I said, just like r- riffing. <laughs> and it's like, well, I don't know if he means that, but then again, yeah. I kind of like mean, that's it. that's marketing and like I've just kind of learned that that is what it is and I can do what I can <laughs> to, to, you know, be myself um, and then they're going to do with that whatever they want. <laughs> So you grew up in a small town in Oklahoma and you yeah. were in the Pentecostal church. You know, a lot of soul rock and roll folks came out of the church. Um, do you find that you're always feeling that push and pull between rebelling against the restrictions and the sort of historical uh, prejudices of the church, but also valuing its community and the music and the uh, feeling of protectedness that maybe it brings a family. It's, I think it's, it's important mm-hmm. to have both. Really. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think like I've, I've gone through many phases of how I feel about like the church as an entity. Um, and at this point I'm just kind of like, I don't think about it all that much anymore. Right. Like I, I agree with most of what you say. I don't, I don't feel like I'm rebelling against it. Um, and I recognize that any sort of spiritual community like that, like it serves a purpose, you know? Um, yeah. And it's, and it's good. Um, it can be, you know, tainted and perverted. Um, but the, at the root of it, uh, you know, I think it's people trying to do the right thing at the very least, you know, but I, I just found that like being bitter about it isn't worth it. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and like thinking that other people are living wrong is, uh, you know, that's not right. No matter which side <laughs> it's on. Um, but I do feel that, um, compassion and community are, uh, are necessary going forward, you know, especially after the past year we've had yeah what was the first song you remember singing as a little kid oh probably this little light of mine (laughs) this little light of mine i'm gonna let it shine you know it (laughs) it's a it's a hit for all ages it is (laughs) and i like that uh for the most part you can sing it like without the religious context it just feels it's like a spiritual song you know it's a spiritual not a not a religious song your record uh the very last day in 2016 i think one of my all-time favorite records of the last 10 years um that title track you know you you're talking about if the end of the world is coming and there's this eruption and you're flung into space uh like you can see yourself singing amazing grace as everything falls apart around you. <laughs> yeah. You know, that song is like a protective cloak in a way, you know. <laughs> and I find myself yeah. singing that song. I'm not even really Christian at all, but I find yeah. myself singing that song to myself uh as like a talisman or something. It just it, it feels so good <laughs> to yeah. sing, you know. 
Hell yeah, that's great. That's what a that's what a, like a meditation or a hymn is, you know. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a power song. <laughs> perspective of like uh, just thinking about people who love destruction you know what I mean there, right. there are people out there who like it's like guns and bombs and tanks and that kind of stuff gets them fired up and excited um, and I don't feel that way at all <laughs> so like me was kind of like putting it on that hat but then it uh, then it became more of what you're talking about right. of just like you know everything has its place and like when that happens you know what I'm gonna be like smiling the way on the way out you know. To contrast that, you know, the single you actually just put out, Damn It, feels like almost like an update in a way where you've grown up a little bit. You're realizing that there's always going to be sort of crazy people. There's always going to be horrible things that happen in history. You're going to question yourself as a as an artist, as a as a man. You know, you say like, you know, yeah. it's hard to know what my purpose is right now. Yeah. You have to sort of change your perspective to be a grateful, happy human being and be an intelligent uh, citizen, right? Because if you actually looked around and saw, you know, the voting rights calamities yeah. that are happening right now in Georgia and these gun laws that are being passed as yeah. mass shootings are coming back in full force, you lose your head, you know, yeah. and you have to somehow acknowledge all that and be grateful that we are who we are when we are in history somehow. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think that that's a great way to sum up that song, man. Um, yeah, that's how I feel. Like, especially the past year, um, I've learned a lot, you know, like not being on the road, I've had a lot more time to think and just be and not have something to do every second of the day and not always be worried about yeah. like the next gig or something. And, uh, I've also become more aware of my privilege, like the fact that I, you know, am able to sustain this and like, I still have my, you know, place to live and food and I'm married to a great person. And like there, there's so much to be grateful for, but at the same time that I'm, uh, really experiencing that gratitude I've also been learning 
what what I've been what I've been ignoring essentially what I didn't know what I didn't know to pay attention to and I think a lot of us feel in that place right now yeah. like okay now we're seeing the things that need to be fixed but a lot of us don't know quite what to do about it yet or how to go forward mm-hmm. you know um, but we have to you know <laughs> you have to we have to right. um, we have to keep pushing I try to whistle Straight through the sour Yeah, the pill tastes bitter I tell you that it tastes sweet I said it's hard to see the slippers From the bottom It's hard to know your purpose Ain't it true? Some folks say there's no go That song has this electric guitar build that builds and builds and builds, sort of like a U2 uh, anthem, you know, that I was reading about. But the the thing that's interesting to me is that it almost never uh, resolves. Just one and four the whole way. Right. And I'm like, when is he going to get to the five? (laughs) It's like a John Lee Hooker song. You're like, no, no. Life yes. doesn't resolve. I love, it just sort of yeah. keeps going and then it ends. <laughs> yeah. 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 Man, I, I love that. Yeah, I love that you make the John Lee Hooker reference because he's like a top 10 of mine. Well, it's funny because you listen to some of his old recordings, you know, one bourbon, mm-hmm. one scotch, you know, sometimes he'll play and he does resolve. But there's times, I think, a, like a live version I remember hearing where the band goes to the five and yep, he doesn't and he doesn't it's <laughs> like now yeah man there's this record of his if you haven't heard it it's called it serves you right to suffer which yeah. is like the most intense album title of all time <laughs> but it's an amazing record it's him with like a just a bassist and a drummer and they keep up like like they're watching him the whole time and they they yeah. keep up with the changes and it's so cool yeah serve you right to suffer Do you know the you know the Jay Giles band from back in the day? I feel like I know that I haven't I haven't done the dive and listened to a bunch of it. My dad was a huge fan of them. They're kind of like okay. a I don't know like a s- funk soul rock and roll thing like CCR but like weirder okay or something. Yeah. Their lead guy was like a harmonica master. Okay, cool. Magic yeah. Di- Magic Dick and his licking stick. I think they called it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but they they have I think one of the best live records of all time called Full House that okay. was playing around my my house growing up and they do a cover of Serves You Right to Suffer. Mm. That I think is about like eight and a half minutes long. Wow, that's cool. Dang. But even, but it also involves like weird commentary, like where he's just like talking to some fictional lover of his. Okay, yeah. That sounds like, like a very you know, John Lee Hooker thing to do. Yeah, and I just remember as a little kid hearing this line where he's like, take out your false teeth, mama. I want to suck on your gums. <laughs> I was like, Jesus, That's what the hell is awesome. this music? 
there's a there's a couple good uh, Lightning Hopkins songs about like girls like he's bought these girls wigs and he's like gonna come get them back because they're not being nice to him you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's like a whole genre <laughs> awesome when did you start listening to more secular music and you know rock and roll like how young I mean as soon as I was listening to anything gospel probably before like we didn't my parents didn't really start going to church uh, as adults until I was like I think four or five or something like that so I was definitely had some other stuff coming in before that and like they my parents weren't strict about what music we listened to really um and they had pretty cool taste like from like the first record that I fell in love with was uh Ry Cooter's record Boomer Story okay. that's probably like I remember being five or six years old and like going fishing with my dad and that record's playing um so I was always listening to secular music as well as gospel and, mo- and most of my gospel input like we didn't listen to a ton of gospel music uh, at home but you know twice on Sundays and once on Wednesdays you know we were doing like the the church service thing why twice on Sunday that seems like a lot uh, Sunday morning and Sunday night I, I don't know that's just what you do and you started recording pretty young I mean I know you were like a teenager when your name started kind of getting around um did you have, you know, the ambition to sort of be a full-time touring artist from a very young age, or did you just sort of hope that your stuff would, you know, get out locally and you could, you know, play the local bars or, you know, what was the plan? Kind of both. Um, I think I, I didn't really know much about like the music business, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and I didn't know anybody personally who played music like for a living. So in my mind, I, I just never really saw it as an option, I guess, until I did like my first gig where I got paid. I think it was like a back to school bash type of thing. And I got paid, I think we split, you know, like 125 bucks between four or five dudes. Um, we're rich. Yeah, exactly. And from then I was just like, well, if I can do this instead of like working a regular job, (laughs) you know, then I'm in. Uh, So I just like whatever I had to do to try to play gigs since then. Um, So I was already kind of on a path of like, you know, working musician for a minute and then got pretty lucky and met like David Macias from 30 Tigers pretty Mm. early on um, while trying to get house concert gigs at Folk Alliance. and yeah, just really lucky to have met a bunch of really good people who have helped me um, make it into a career. Shout out to uh, David because, you know, 30 Tigers kind of rescued our album uh, last oh, year. Awesome. And they're the best. You know, the label structure has changed, you know, within the last 10 years for sure, where I think artists are realizing that owning their masters. Uh, and having a distributor partner is more valuable than sort of hitching their wagon to a uh, an old dinosaur of a major label a or a, a company that's going to own them for the next 10 years, basically, yep. you know? Yep. Um, yeah, that's something I'm grateful that I realized pretty early on. I had a, a friend uh, recommend the Donald Passman book, Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business, I think is what it's called. Okay. Uh, and 
it's it just lays it all out. It's like here's how major label deals work. Here's what publishing is and how those numbers work. You know, um, yeah. Here's what a normal artist would pay a manager and a booking agent and that kind of thing. Um, so I was able to make good decisions because I read that pretty early on. How many days a year before this all shut down were you typically on the road? It depends on the you know where it was at in the record cycle and what gigs we could get. Um, but between 50 and 125, and I think that's like total days, you know, um, maybe a little bit more uh, here and there, but I should actually ask my manager and know the answer to that. Cause I could be wildly <laughs> wrong on this, <laughs> uh, but a lot like enough. I was coming and going enough that I, you know, I, this is the longest I've been in one place in a very, very long time. And you're married now, you know, but you know, before that, or even in the early part of that relationship, did you have to wrestle between, uh, you know, keeping your relationships going and feeding your dream? Because I think sometimes that happens uh, among folks, especially when you mm -hmm. start to really want to have a long-term relationship. Um, they suffer, you know, these relationships, and yeah. you see it all the time. Amongst the most successful you know, artists of our time, it's always like they got the number one yeah. record and they got divorced the same year, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think a lot of it's just keeping, keeping in touch and like, ha you know, if you want to do this, you have to find somebody who's cool with that, you know? And it was, it was hard at the beginning and we had some conversations about it, uh, and worked through it, you know, because we care about each other and believe in each other. How'd you meet your wife? Uh, I was playing this bar that was, so I had a regular gig at this place called the deli in Norman, Oklahoma, uh, every Tuesday from seven to nine. <laughs> and, uh, Meg lived like two blocks and she would just walk there pretty. And like, she worked the other direction, two blocks. So, okay. uh, she would just like stop in and see me every once in a while. And then eventually she invited me to a party at her house. Um, yeah, but she wasn't like into me at first, but I thought she was because she invited me to a party, you know, <laughs> just being polite. You know? And I, yeah. And Ellen, I was like, hmm, I was 19 when we met and I was like, I got invited to a college party and, you know, I wasn't in college. So uh, I felt pretty cool. <laughs> Still feel pretty cool. You think resistance. Makes you seem so strong You keep your distance Then wonder why we don't get along Your song, uh, Vulnerable, off the new record, um... Let me say that again. It examines... <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna edit this out. <laughs> It feels to me that it examines, like, masculinity in its new form, you know, like how we're supposed to view ourselves uh, in that, you know, meekness and softness and vulnerability can be strength, you know, and that we have to um, teach ourselves to be vulnerable. Because I think as guys, everything is telling us, you know, 
be hard. Be, yeah. you know, aloof. Don't yeah. ever show what's going on behind uh, your eyes. Yeah. Uh, trees are strong because they bend in the wind, man. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I've spent a lot of time in nature this year, and uh, it's just reinforced what, what I originally wrote that song about, which was that, like, dealing with that masculinity uh, and, and what kind of... The, the baggage that comes with that um, and, and trying to unlearn some of those ideas um, because we ha- like we're gonna have to learn to be softer <laughs> Spending a lot of time outside in nature is kind of the more time I spend outside, the more I feel like I'm kind of in touch with that uh, that softer part. Like, look at the way that plants and fungus and you know birds do it. Um, gentler, much gentler. What is your biggest weakness? You think as a guy? Hmm, anger. Yeah. I don't know if this is like a biological thing. I haven't read into it, um, but the anger one is hard to um, hard to rationalize. Um, yeah, I'd say that. I mean, I'm not like punching walls or anything. My my reaction to anger is to just like close up, you know, mm. to to not be vulnerable. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's the original title of that song was "Note to Self." Um, you know, and I still feel that way about it. Um, just need a little reminder, like, it's okay, buddy. You can, you can talk about it. <laughs> well, I think having a partner for, you know, a long period of time, you change as a person, right? You was 19. Uh, when you were 19, you were a different person than you are now. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and so is my wife. Yeah. And I think you have to realize that your wife, your partner is going to be an evolving entity, you know, and that's really the hardest thing about uh, continuing a relationship into your 30s and your 40s and beyond is like you have to be okay with everything changing. Yeah. (laughs) Somehow. You know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's always it's always shifting and evolving, and we're like a little bit of a different person every day, you know. Um, and that's, I mean, I think that's at the root of a lot of love is like recognizing it in yourself and others and accepting that. I think a companion song to that, uh, singing to me, um, you have that line. Sometimes I shout to show that I'm strong, you know. And I think I grew up with parents that are just loud people in general, (laughs) you know, they're passionate, opinionated, artistic, just loud, chatty people that when things go wrong, it got scary. Um, I always told myself, well, like, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm completely different from my dad. And then I saw myself doing that exact same thing, Mm -hmm. you know, to the point where in college, you know, I was in this very, um, toxic relationship for years. And I actually went to like a counselor in college 
and it was like, I'm going to like break something if I don't uh, start talking to someone about this. I didn't feel comfortable talking about it, I think, with my friends or family, yeah. you know, because they were like, oh, why don't you just break up with her? You know, if you think yeah. she's going to drive you crazy because, well, I love her. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Anger is one of those ones that um, everybody feels it, but nobody is really, I feel like a lot of people aren't really taught good ways to handle it. You know, yeah. um, you, you get in trouble for showing it. Uh, and I mean, not on the internet anymore, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Or you get a huge Twitter following. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) exactly. Um, but in, in normal social context, you know, like anger is usually not, not welcome. Um, and yeah, it's, it's hard to process. That line in, in singing to me about having music and, um, the act of singing as sort of this, um, medicine that can carry you through the hardest times. Um, tell me a little more about that. I mean, it's true. (laughs) The right words, sometimes they won't be heard. Sometimes my mouth's absurd and wrong Yes, I know Sometimes I sink so low Sometimes I shout to show I'm strong But you've been singing to me Singing to me all along Singing to me Singing to me all along You kept on singing when everything I'm sure there are exceptions, but almost any major religion, the main rituals involve singing, whether it's like a shaman, yeah. you know, somewhere deep in the woods, or it's uh, at the Pentecostal white people church in Priscilla, Oklahoma, or if it's at, you know, uh, I, I mean, yeah, in, if it's Indian classical music, like all, all of this stuff um, points to music being like some force for greater good, (laughs) you know, with like some healing potential and, and it gives us the ability to transcend, uh, our normal state, um, for, for very, I mean, for basically no money, (laughs) you know, just a little bit, a little bit of air across the vocal cords and, uh, you can be somewhere else or in the same place, but a better version of it. Do you have a moment in your life as a singer, songwriter, performer where you could feel the energy of the heavens hitting you on stage <laughs> at a particular uh, show or collaborating with someone uh, specific? I can't think of any specific ones because I, I'm really kind of of the belief that like every time it happens, that's a very that's a very special thing that happens when you play music with and for people. Um, my... Uh, former tour manager. You might have met him. Do you know Kyle Crownover? Sounds familiar. Okay, gotcha. Um, anyways, he was tour managing me for a while, and he was like, "Man, I like to think of every show as like some unique organism. Uh-huh. That's that's like it's a one of a kind thing where like all these people are in this room experiencing 
this one thing together at this one time and like it's never gonna happen like that again you know like yeah this this group of people will never be in the same place doing this again they will probably never be in the same place again this particular group of people um and to me you know that makes me think of like there's a bible verse i can't tell you which one but um i believe it's jesus talking saying wherever two or more are gathered there i am Mm. uh I'm probably misquoting that, but the the listeners can look it up. (laughs) But it makes me think of that, and I kind of believe in that a little bit. You've been singing to me, singing to me all along. Singing to me, singing to me all along. You kept on singing when everything went wrong. Still don't know what took me so long. One of my favorite collaborations uh, that you have, which I think is how my wife started listening to you, um, is your song with Sarah Jaros, um, uh, "Your Your Water," which I think was off other arrangements your original version right well yeah i think we actually recorded the the version with sarah before the oh okay the like album version came out it's just such a really effortless uh harmony that you guys create together yeah Um, she rules i didn't realize i needed a drink of your water How do you try to capture the kinetic fury of a live show in the studio when that microscope is on you? Most of my records have been done where we rehearse a decent amount before we go into the studio so we can play through the songs, no problem, by the time we go in, usually. Um, what I find makes a big difference is having somebody in the control room who's like a great cheerleader who can like approximate the energy of an audience. Like, um, yeah, just somebody in the control room who's like excited and listening deeply and like taking really good notes and like, you know, getting on the talk back really quickly after a take and letting you know how it was or what you could do different next time. Um, when we're making this record. I don't remember what song it was, but like I'll never forget and yellow, the, the producer John and yellow, like hopping on the talk back as soon as it takes done, he's like, Don't move. <laughs> and then he comes like sprinting out of the control room and he's got this like bank of guitar pedals that he's using. He records like just random mics through guitar pedals. Um oh, interesting. like yeah, and so he like runs out of the control room and he like slides on his knees into his like guitar pedal bank and like starts going to town twisting knobs and stuff and then he's uh-huh. and, he, and then he looks everything once over and is like, "Okay." And then he runs back into the control room and is like, "Go." <laughs> you know? And the, yeah. so him doing that like kept the energy through the transition between takes. And it was just, it was a moment where I was like, ah, okay, this is like one of the weird magic ways that producers do their juice. It's not all knobs and, and, you know, not that the producers I've had in the past were, uh, you know, clinical or 
anything like that, but seeing somebody get that excited about something that, that, you know, like they were inspired by that take and it made them think to do like, Oh, I'm going to go mess with the gear now because now I know exactly what to do. Then that gets you excited about the next take. take. Like, what did he do out there? (laughs) How's, how is it going to sound? Yeah. Like, what did he do out there? And like, I can't wait to hear it back through the cans when we do this next take. Um, so yeah, having somebody, uh, to perform for, like you're always performing. I like performing for musicians. You know, musicians are always trying to impress each other, even if it's by doing, even if if it's by doing less, especially in the studio, you know, like if somebody just nails quarter notes and you look across the room, they're staring at you like, yeah, I'm just hitting the quarter notes and you love it, you know, and I'm nailing them. Uh, so anyways, you're trying to impress musicians, but having somebody who's not in the band to like try and impress and perform for, uh, yeah, it's really helpful. That's why I find Nashville to be the most intimidating place to play in the world. <laughs> Dude, it's this. Everybody's like, and then like half the people are just like looking at your pedals like, oh, yeah, I've got that one. <laughs> but like when they actually get fired up, you're like, we really earned that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, if, Nash- if the Nashville crowd's dancing, then you're winning. There's 1,352 guitar pickers in Nashville. played years ago and I don't know why they let us in there we had like our full eight piece band with horn section in the station in around like oh, three mics awesome. yeah and halfway through people were like up and dancing yes. and like this old timer in the corner you know with the bucket of popcorn and shit he like comes up to me yep. and he's like yeah we don't usually do that here yeah. I was like, oh, is that like a compliment or is, it, is that like a threat? Uh, yeah. Or is he like threatening me? Yeah. <laughs> my, uh, my first ever gig in Nashville was at the station Inn. I got somebody I think got sick and couldn't do a songwriter in the round thing. And I got the last minute call and yeah, that gig kind of like it, it hooked me up. Like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for that gig. That place is awesome. But that title of your record, uh, Be Here Instead, I feel like is sort of the uh, scolding reminder that most people need right now when we're suctioned to our phones Mm -hmm. and our screens. Uh, I'm curious how audiences will be once we all come back into the real world. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe we will be more present because we'll be so grateful to have this real experience in real live music. I can't stand The opening track, the or the first single, rather, uh, the real thing that you released, yeah. is trying to capture the need for like physical intimacy. Yeah. You know, the the need we have to connect with our fellow humans in person. You know, yeah. and uh, I feel for young people who aren't able to go to school and see their friends. You know, 
they're losing part of their youth. Yeah. You know, definitely, definitely. And it's bizarre, like having now that we're all forced to do this, you know, to some extent, like now that we're all being forced to like Zoom and FaceTime and that kind of stuff, it, um, it really makes you wonder how, like, well, how much was I volunteering for that before all of this, you know? Yeah. Um, again, grateful, you know, like it's my sister's in Australia right now. Um, and she's been there for a minute and I love being able to just like, Hey Shelby, you know, it's awesome, but we do lose something, you know, um, mannerisms, um, the way people smell it's weird <laughs> you know all these little things yeah. you don't think about they're like oh dang that that's meaningful stuff My sister and I, um, I think, have gotten way closer over this last year because she's one of the only people we sort of included in our little house pod, pod. you know, Mm -hmm. and she, you know, has gone through a tough time in her relationships and we were able to be there for each other um, in a way that I think we were never able to be together before. Um, And you grew up with a sibling uh, and you have like multiple versions of your relationship when you're little kids and you're kind of like rivals or antagonists, <laughs> but you love each other, but you're also like torturing each yeah. other, you know? <laughs> um, and then you kind of, you know, drift apart when you're trying to be an independent person. You know, I lived in LA, she was in Florida, then she was in Chicago. Um, and when she was able to come out here, I think we finally were able to be like, oh yeah, this relationship is super important. Yeah. And you have how many years of common experience, you know, that's what I think about Shelby all the time. It's like, you're the only other person who's been through like almost the exact same things that I have, you know? (laughs) What's Um, the age difference between you guys? uh, Two years. Yeah. So that's real close. Yeah. My wife is always like, you guys have this like language that you speak to each other that I'm not a part of. 80% 80% of our jokes just like completely go over everyone's head except yeah. between us, you know? Yeah. It feels like that with a band sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. Like the entire band is laughing for an hour, but no, but like the promoter, the sound guy, nobody else is laughing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are they talking about? <laughs> if you could have your way when we return to safe public touring, you could play any venue in the world. Where would it be? And what would the first song you play be? Oh, man. Uh, I can play anywhere. Um, yeah. Hmm. Let your imagination run I mean, wild. Yeah, I want to play, you know, I almost said, I think I'm just going to, Madison Square Garden. Why not? If, I'm, if we're going there. Go big. Just like, go there. Yeah, okay, Madison Square Garden. All right. And you get to have a collaboration on stage with any artist living or dead go <laughs> um ooh, uh ella fitzgerald <laughs> I, I would pay for that yeah and we're i don't know what we're singing yet but it's gonna be awesome 
What is your guilty pleasure? Listen, something that you're slightly embarrassed. I don't about. feel guilty or embarrassed about liking any music anymore. It's all, I mean, <laughs> the fact that any recorded music exists in the first place is like some miracle of the heavens, you know, like what you plug this thing into that thing and point it at that thing. And then it plays it back for you later, the way that the air moved. Anyways, it's uh, <laughs> that is a good way to look at it. Anyways, uh, but the thing, let's see, the thing that I would be most embarrassed by previously is like, uh, I don't know, Billie Eilish. I think that shit rules. Um, you don't have to be embarrassed. Yeah, I'm not that. embarrassed. And like some people, like, that's mainstream, man. <laughs> but like to yeah. me, the first time that I heard her, it reminded me of the first time that I heard Tom Waits. I was just like, who is this and how did they make this and how does it sound like this? Don't know I'm no good for you. And why does it make me feel so good and uncomfortable at the I've same time? <laughs> Originally, folk music was pop music. It was, you know, right. it was music with melodies that anybody could sing for maximum, you know, impact <laughs> that were easy to sing back. You know, like that's the folk process is being able to sing a song back and then like come up with new words because you've sung it so many times. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. And it, pop music in a way is folk music. It's the music that most people are familiar with and can sing back. The reason I have resented pop music for a long time is not because of the songs. It's because people like you, who I feel like transcend so many different genres and create music that means so much to me, right? I want mm -hmm. that music to be selling out Madison Square Garden, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, where is, yeah. where is my, like, when do my heroes, my songwriting icons get to be recognized in a, uh, you know, bigger form. Yeah. Like, and it's, yeah. And it's like, there's, there's a whole business hierarchy that exists to promote those kinds of things. And now with the internet, right. it's just kind of like this crazy free for all, like, think we'll think about like Lil Nas X since he's already in the news right now. Like I watched that video this morning. It's in amazing. Bed. Like I couldn't come up with that. It's creative in its own way. And like what it means to be a musician is like shifted a lot in the past 10 years. And I see it as like, you know what, that's okay. And like, I don't need a Grammy or whatever to like eat. Um, and you know, in fact, I've carved out like a pretty comfortable, uh, existence for myself with music. And I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. You well, know, I think it's encouraging, I think to see 
pop artists actually using a lot of real instrumentation again. And even in that Lil Nas X song, it has kind of a almost a Spanish guitar uh, acoustic backdrop, which is kind of interesting, you know? Romantic talking, you don't even have to try. You're cute enough to fuck with me tonight. Looking at the table, all I see is bleeding white. Baby, you live in the lobby, nigga, you ain't living right. Cocaine and drink it with your friends. You live in the dark, boy, I cannot pretend. And it almost reminded me in a weird way of one of my favorite songs of yours, uh, Jealous Son. You know, that just beautiful kind of swirling acoustic guitar rhythm, you know. Um, And there's there's a few songs that will come up on my playlists when I don't have service, right? Oh, yeah. And you're driving like Big Sur and you're like, well, I got to put on my master playlist because... Yeah, whatever happens to be on my phone (laughs) somehow. (laughs) And like... I remember listening to that song driving the coast in Big Sur and just being like oh, nice. so thankful that, you know, this music existed, you know. That's awesome. And I I've heard that, that song what a hundred times, but it like yeah. every time it comes on it like kind of makes me choke up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I love uh I love when you have a specific place tied to a specific song and every time you hear it you can kind of like go back there I have tried to show him your mind I've cast stones I've begged I've cried but all my pleas fall hollow do you remember where you were when you wrote that? Ooh, yeah, I do. It was in Norman, Oklahoma, uh, in Meg, my wife's, my then girlfriend's kitchen. Uh, I had stayed at her house and uh, she went to work and I had a guitar there and uh, I was kind of like playing with the idea of the sun like when the sun rises, then the person I love goes away. She has to go to work. And like the idea of the song was like blaming it on the sun somehow. Uh, yeah, I remember that little kitchen. It was great. Weird linoleum. <laughs> well, the funny thing is that people who don't know you or have not heard that story would maybe listen to that song and be like, man, this guy is going through a really tough breakup maybe maybe you cheated on her she's like she's leaving (laughs) but really it's you're actually talking to the sun i'm talking to the sun and i'm saying hey you stop that because every time you come up my wife has to or my you know my love has to go to work (laughs) can't he find someone who Kind of an absurd concept, but yeah. <laughs> I've written some of my most sad, like just really down, intense songs, like in a happy place. You know, like mm-hmm. I don't know why that is. You know, there's that phrase, you know, sad songs make us happy, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes you have to be in a uh, good relationship. You have to 
find someone that you love to actually write the other side of that love. You know, if you, yeah, if you lose them, if you, uh, can't be with them, you know, mm-hmm. what is that like? Yeah, definitely. Can you take us out with uh, a song from the new record? Be here instead. Something that you want people to hear. Let's do always. Tell me a little about it. Always is, uh, it's just a really simple love song. Um, and it's one that like transformed pretty dramatically from inception to, uh, what's on the record. Uh, it started out as like a, uh, I don't even know, like almost bebop <laughs> song, but without the crazy notes, like just the way that the rhythm was and the way the chords were laid out. Like I was listening to a lot of Bill Evans and trying to learn like a little bit of piano, which if you're trying to learn piano, Bill Evans is the most intimidating person to listen to. So it kind of transformed into like a disco song. I don't, Why I don't not? really, I don't even know how to describe the feel of the song. I think, yeah, just kind of disco. Um, but I'm really proud of it. I'm proud of like, to me being able to take a song from one feel and completely transform it to a different feel, like from something that you would never be able to dance to, to something that's danceable and sing-alongable without really changing the chords or melody to me. It made me feel like, Oh, I wrote, I wrote a good song. (laughs) You know, I feel like a good song can handle a lot of, um, liberties when you're interpreting it, you know? Well, I uh, continue to be glad that you exist as a songwriter and as a human being. Same, dude. I'm sure we'll crisscross somewhere. Oh, yeah. It'll happen. Then another I felt so dear Parker Millsap, everybody. You can go to parkermillsap.com for his newest record. It's called Be Here Instead. It is out right now. Disregard what I said at the top of the episode. And April 23rd, he'll be playing a live stream on mandolin.com. His entire record, start to finish. Please tune in and watch that. He is a special, special talent. Also coming soon on the mightymandolin.com, my band Dustball Revival will be playing our very first 
ticketed virtual double concert experience. Yes, very exciting. May 6th, we'll be playing our new record, Is It You, Is It Me, from top to bottom. And May 13th, we'll be bringing back old favorites and playing new songs you have never heard. Please check it out at dustbowlrevival.com. My voice is a little scratchy because we've been singing our heads off this whole week getting ready for it. As always, the show on the road is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lubitin, and we are a part of the BGS Podcast Network. Stay safe, and we'll see you on the trail.